This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. It's a full year of Play-By-Play Cast now, episode 52. Thanks, as always, for clicking subscribe or download and joining us here again on a Friday morning. My name, of course, is... Joel Godet. I'm the radio and television play-by-play voice of the Ball State University Cardinals. And this is Play-by-Play Cast, the podcast about play-by-play guys for play-by-play guys, hosted by a play-by-play guy. As always, you can find us on social media. You can hit us up on Twitter at PXPCast. You can find myself on Twitter as well. I'm at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. And also, if you get a second here, Give us a rating or a review if you get the chance. If you enjoy the podcast, if you like the podcast, give us a rating and or a review on iTunes. We can. It takes like five seconds. Okay, good. All right, now that we all took care of that, um, if you didn't, that was that was like a solid seven seconds of your commute that you're not going to get back. Actually, hindsight, don't rate the podcast while commuting. I don't want to advocate texting while driving or, or clicking stars while driving. Next red light, next next uh, parking lot you get into, uh, throw, throw some stars our way if you enjoy the podcast. And uh, if you enjoy it as well, uh, tweet at us or, uh, or retweet the pod, anything like that. Help spread it via word of mouth. It always keeps uh, helping us grow, helping us get guests, and uh, helping us provide content and, uh, and information and knowledge to all of you out there as well. Uh, today's guest is Kevin Calabro. He is the voice on television of the Portland Trailblazers and uh, is a really cool story. And uh, it's a really fun conversation this week. Uh, Kevin spent just this past year as the voice of the Trailblazers. Before that, for about a decade, uh, lived in the Pacific Northwest, based out of Seattle, uh, did some Pac-12 network uh, work and did some NBA on ESPN, and did uh, NBA on ESPN Radio. He did the NBA Finals on ESPN Radio. And then previous to that, about two decades, as the voice of the Seattle Supersonics. Yeah, the voice of the Seattle Supersonics, Kevin Calabro. So a lot of interesting things to talk to uh, Kevin about in that regard. But wildly respected, fantastic set of pipes. Uh, He's in a broadcasting family. His brother Dave uh, is a TV guy here in Indianapolis locally as well, uh, local sports on TV. So kind of runs in the family there as well. I actually caught Kevin. We did this on the phone, but I caught him a couple of days after he had just been uh, here in town in Indianapolis. Uh, You'll hear him talk about uh, the pipes, though, the voice, uh, how and why he sounds the way he does. Uh, making it to the NBA at a really young age. Uh, before he was the voice of the Sonics, he was the voice of the Kings when they were in Kansas City. Uh, and he was still sub-30 when he was the voice of the Kansas City Kings. So we'll talk about that. I'll talk about building a network, uh, how that helped him get to the Sonics job, uh, the benefits of being with a team, what he likes about being the voice of a team as opposed to kind of being a hired gun with a network, uh, and what it was like when uh, the Seattle Supersonics left town 
uh, all that and much more. But where we start our broadcast is kind of the ins and outs of broadcasting. And Kevin will talk about it a lot right off the top here. But Portland is a really progressive team when it comes to its broadcast. And uh, Kevin really thrived in that this year and really enjoyed that this year. It was something he'd always kind of admired from afar uh, early on in his career, but something he got to be a part of over the uh, the 82 games of this season. So we discuss putting broadcasts together with the Portland Trailblazers and Kevin's approach physically to broadcasting uh, and how they uh, kind of map out their TV broadcasts, how they use different technology and, and their sideline reporter is used in a different way than uh, I think you would see on a lot of different telecasts. So we talk about kind of the, the complexion of a Portland Trailblazers television broadcast. And in particular off the top here, how each of their 82 games is produced as its own entity, so to speak. What makes each of their 82 broadcasts so special? Why is this game special? Not just a game, but this game. That is where we start on episode number 52, a full year of play-by-play cast with our guest, Kevin Calabro of the Portland Trailblazers. You know, it's a lot like a, a soap opera for people at home. I mean, you, what I try to you know, continually uh, uh, remind myself is that folks are watching each. There are some folks that will watch every one of these games. They're going to sit down every night and watch these games. And they're so plugged into to the Blazers and what they're doing, and they want to know from night to night, you know, has there been improvement? What has changed with the club? Uh, who are these opponents that we're playing tonight? Why? Uh, what are the key matchups? What's the strategy going to be? That type of thing. So it's, I think that's something that we always uh, try to try to be mindful of. Is uh, the other thing is you never take uh, for granted uh, that people have watched you that that previous night i mean we know that there are a lot of people that are watching us night tonight but there's some people that are just stopping in for the first time in a week or something so bring them up to speed um so you have to do all of that uh, i think within uh, the course of a broadcast but what we do ordinarily is we'll every game uh at noon uh we'll get on a conference call and we'll spend about 45 minutes just batting around story ideas um uh, and impressions of the club and so forth uh, and we will do that on the road as well as a production team. We'll meet in the lobby usually at about noon or so forth. And that's uh, just before we'll go to a shoot around and we'll, you know, take in the, the practice and, and watch the players talk to the coaches afterwards. So that, you know, you've, you've, you've come to the broadcast with some stories, some anecdotes and so, so forth, as well as the, just the raw data that you can get from the, from Elias news service and from uh, your, your notes supplied by each club and so forth. Uh, and an accumulation of, of notes and so forth. So you, um, you, I think you, you, you're certainly, uh, equipped then when you, when you get to the, to the, to the broadcast side, you know, you know, what your partner, uh, likes, what his concerns are, uh, what direction they may go when you're on the air and so forth at various points. Uh, we, because you're doing the television and you have limited, very limited time. You know, you try to condense all of that like a 45-minute meeting into a minute and a half or two minutes that you're going to use at the top of the show to introduce the show. And then away you go. And then you got to be prepared for just about anything because the game doesn't always obviously follow the script that you've, <laughs> laid, that you've laid out. That's the beauty, I think, of, of live sports and of live television is that the, uh, it's the unpredictability and the fact that you got to be nimble, you got to be quick, you have to have 
done your homework and, and then you react to it and just just go with the game go with the flow follow the game what's a good broadcast to you technically or overarching i mean when you game's over you stand up what makes you say we were good tonight well i think just just being on top of the, the nuances of the game and so forth uh, being able to, to maybe teach uh, viewers, uh, just staying on top of uh, the course of the game, uh, being able to explain why certain things that seem inexplicable uh, were so, uh, based on your conversation with coaches and players and so forth, kind of give 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 the the fans a background into you know why the coach is doing this on any particular occasion in these situations and so forth. So if you can click on a couple of those, uh, and and y- you know that, uh, and you've spent some time doing your homework, and uh, you're ready for the game, and you can click in those those certain situations, that's when you you know you feel like oh, okay, you know we were on top of that uh, that 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 little rule, we were on top of that rule that uh, that you know maybe seemed like some some obscure rule, but you were on top of that, and you were able to explain that and so forth. I think though, with, when you're with a team. Uh, so much of it is, is it's about winning, uh, I, you know, because you become so emotionally involved and uh, you've, you've got so much currency in the team emotionally that when they win, that's that's when I feel like, you know, we've had a successful broadcast. We uh, this team has won. Uh, we've, we've been on top of it. We've reported. We've been fair. We've been objective. You know, we gave the other team credit as well. That's when I feel like you do your best work. And, you know, the thing that you really have to guard against though, when you become emotionally involved with a team like that is the use of we and they, I have never ever in my broadcast ever used the word, uh, we and they, our, so forth. Uh, I don't, you know, I just don't like to use those, those pronouns, uh, because, uh, to me, it, uh, it's very unprofessional. I mean, when I hear that, I, I immediately, the broadcaster loses credibility in my mind. I know who they're working for. I, I, I've been in the business and so forth uh, of, of working for teams for a long, long time. Uh, and when I, but when I, as a listener, consume a broadcast, I hear that I, it just turns me off uh, because I, uh, because I, then I just, I just wonder about the credibility uh, of, of the guy on the other side of the microphone. If I can go back, you mentioned shoot arounds too, um, and go in and kind of your the production side of that and, and what you guys are looking for and talking about and, and that side of things. Um, we had Bob Rathbone on a couple episodes ago, uh, and he was talking a little bit about the same thing and, and what they look for. Um, can you dive a little bit more into to what you're looking for when you go to practices or shoot arounds, uh, what you're trying to glean and, and the questions that are important to you to have answered when you walk out of there at the end of it? Well, uh, first of all, who's upright? <laughs> the first Fair. thing is you go and you do a body count. <laughs> Anybody missing? Who's sitting out? Uh, why are they sitting out? And of course, teams are really testy about the revealing injuries for, for a number of reasons, but at least you can, you know, you can report to your audience that, uh, Joe Smith, uh, didn't participate in shoot around today because uh, the club says of, uh, he's, got, he's got a sore right knee, may not be playing tonight. And then Joe Smith shows up and now he's playing. So, you know, that's, that's, that's a story. Um, I think that's first and foremost is just, you do a count, 
you make sure everybody's accountable. Everybody's is out on the floor. If they're not out on the floor, then why not? That's the first question you have, of course, when the coach, when they come off the floor, um, you, you know, if you can, uh, and because it's becoming increasingly tougher now to talk to players uh, after a shoot around, some prefer, some clubs prefer that their athletes be interviewed immediately after a shoot around the day of the game. Some clubs, like the Blazers, uh, opt to uh, open up their locker room before the game uh, rather than have their players handle questions at a shoot around. So it's just, it just depends on what the players at the beginning of the year voted upon. Uh, so in terms of the content, those, that's what we try to, to reach out for. And then if you can corner an assistant coach, you ask them about the scouting report on Team X, uh, Utah Jazz. Uh, give me the th- top three challenges that the Utah Jazz present. Keep it simple uh, and allow the coaches to uh, to, uh, uh, to to give you as much knowledge as they possibly can. But you know, but only by f- feeding them just some some very brief. Uh, questions about the challenges presented by the opponents. That that always seems to be the best method, I think, that, that we've got. And then if you get a specific question about uh, an opposing player or the matchup or how to how to play him, how to adjust or so forth, you can ask him that question. A lot of coaches will opt not to give you that information, but sometimes you'll get you'll get a couple of gems on that. And then that's something you can use during the broadcast. Is you know they they want to play the right hand of Gordy Hayward and take the right hand away and force him to go left. You know have they done that to this point? They haven't. Well, why haven't they? Or how do they defend the pick and roll? Do they go over the pick? Do they go under the pick? Who are they defending? Uh, is he a good shooter? Is he a non-shooter? Is he guys trying to get to the rim and so forth? So you have to know your personnel extremely well on both clubs and the tendencies and assistant coaches can be a wealth of knowledge. Now, why the assistant coach? Because the head coach w- will give you that information, but I think he's so uh, belabored with with other stuff, other issues and so forth, um, and, and just the media crush that sometimes you're better off wandering over there and talking to the assistant coach. And a lot of times the head coaches will give the assistant coaches the okay to talk to media, particularly local media, if you're representing the team. So those are, I think those are just a couple of things that, uh, that, that we try to do anyway when we show up at a practice. I don't know if script is the right word, but do, do you kind of, do you script in your mind how you want to attack getting some of that information out there from the get-go um, just in terms of how you set the scene of a game, ball goes up. Sure, yeah. No, no. Those are the, those those are your those are your. And I hate to say keys, but those are your keys. Those are your your topics that you're going to use. And we'll use only maybe a couple of of, uh, of, of topics in the top of the show. Um, and and again, that's agreed upon between me, our analysts, uh, uh, our sideline reporter, our producer. The day of in our meeting at our twelve o'clock meeting, we'll decide. All right, here's what we're here are our top two. Here are our top three, and and we do that obviously on in, on the television side so that we can come up with some video to support that. So, um, I, I essentially am just a traffic cop on the television side. So I'm I'm just going to kind of lay it out briefly, a couple of lines, turn it over to my analyst, who then will carry it. You know, TV is an analyst medium, and I keep that in mind. And uh, so your call should be short, succinct, to the point, and allow the analyst to get in and get out and kind of do his thing. Uh, but that's what we do on the television side in the, in, the, in the top two minutes. And then once you get on the air, once the ball's in the air, then I think you can make, you know, a couple of uh, comments about and, and maybe get into depth a little further 
on the matchup and the mechanics uh, and, uh, of the game and so forth. And then, like I say, you just you, you kind of let the game take you where it takes you. What's uh, what's your approach in terms of how much you talk and when to talk and setting up the analyst the right way uh, and, and finding and striking that right balance between your voice, his voice and no voice? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, because I've been doing radio now on ESPN radio. I've been doing that since, well, I've been working for them since 01, had been working for them uh, in and out. Uh, and because we did a simulcast with the Sonics for 21 seasons, I've, I've kind of had to learn since the Sonics left town in 08, I've kind of had to relearn how to do the TV, the TV play by play. Uh, and less is more, as they say. Um, you know, you, you obviously want to be on top of the big calls, uh, the big plays. Um, you you got to constantly remind yourself, folks at home can see this. With the simulcast, uh, they 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 just let me go. That's that's the way people just got to a point here. And we did the simulcast for 15 of my 21 seasons here in Seattle. The fans just got to a point where they just they, – they, they, they recognize, hey, this is a this is going to be a radio call on TV, but we like it. Um, uh, they 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 love the fact that we were doing that. It was not uncommon um, when you go back, you know, 20 or so years. Chick Hearn did it for years in Los Angeles, and he's the one that kind of popularized that. He used to do it in Phoenix um, with Al McCoy. They used to do it in Utah with uh, Hot Rod Hunley. So. It has been done in the past in, in several markets. And, and I think a lot of the reason that they've split those up is because they wanted to sell uh, teams looking for revenue streams, wanted to sell radio only and TV only separate of one another. So they, they did that in a number of, uh, of cases. In fact, that's why they broke it up in Seattle eventually uh, back in 2004, I think it was. So uh, that that's the one thing that I've got to constantly remind myself. Is, hey, it's a television call. Less is more. People can see it. Try to add that next level, though. What's the next level? Uh, notice something about the play that that maybe folks aren't watching. Because a lot of times, play-by-play guy, and m- most of the time, and I'm, I do it myself, you keep your eye on the ball while the analyst is looking at everything off the ball. They're looking at the nine other guys. You are basically watching the ball uh, to see where the ball's going. Will the ball be scored? Will the ball be stolen? And so forth. You know, you're kind of basketball-centric uh, when, when you're when you're doing the game as a play-by-play guy and the analyst is looking at all the stuff off the ball and wants to uh, bring that to, uh, to the viewer's attention. So that was, uh, I think the biggest thing um, when, when I uh, began to do the TV for, uh, for the Portland Trailblazers and, you know, the number of times, even if there's a big call, just lay out, you know, let's, let's hear the crowd noise. I use that. I think you, you need to do that even in radio, particularly on radio. Uh, I don't think it's done enough. Allow the crowd noise to carry you. Allow the crowd to tell the story to your audience uh, and ride that wave a little bit. Lay out a little bit. Let's hear the crowd. Let's hear some noise. Uh, Get an idea of what's going on in the building, how that building is shaking and rocking uh, when there's a big play. Uh, or if you know the opponents make a, a big play themselves, you can hear the air come out of the of the building. You know you can hear the the fans sigh. That's that's always good too to use that to your advantage. So I, I'd like to do that a lot on on radio and on TV. How do you negotiate with yourself in terms of still 
still calling the play and still being able to hit the hit the notes of the play uh, while at the same time also having that that ability to lay out and not not being too minimalist, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you have to be minimalist because you, unlike radio, you don't really need to, to tell folks where the ball is on the floor. Sure. Uh, they, they obviously can see that. Um, so it's that's that's a tough one. Uh, I, you know, and you want to be unique, I think, too, in your description of the play and so forth. Um, you, you can't help but describe what fans are seeing, but I think you, you know, you, I think you give the fans some idea of your personality and what you like and your dislikes and uh, your knowledge of the game just by the the sparse language that you use uh, during the during the course of a game. Keep it simple, uh, keep it minimal, as you say, and but keep it impactful. Let the tone of your voice too work for you. You know, uh, if you've if you've got a big voice, let it work for you. You know, uh, drive it and then back off a little bit. Uh, maybe whisper a little bit sometimes. You know, it's uh, it, it can be 82 games. You can get yourself into a rut. And that's why I think it's important for I think every other game. I don't I, I don't make it a point to after every game break down my broadcast. A lot of guys do. A lot of guys will watch their stuff, listen to their stuff and so forth. I like to give it maybe I'll go back every four or five games and, and watch a game, watch a broadcast or something just to kind of get an idea of, all right, maybe a little more here, maybe a little less there, but you know, otherwise I don't, I don't try to be too analytical about what I'm doing. What do you watch when you do go back? What are you looking for? Well, all, all the stuff we just talked about, you okay. know, did you tell, did you tell the story? Uh, did you talk too much? Did you allow your analyst to, get in and get out did you feed your analysts some good questions did you tee them up did you did you get your sideline reporter involved uh did you talk to the picture did you follow the picture did the did the director follow you you know those types of things uh, you know there what drives me nuts sometimes about the television is is that uh you'll have an analyst talking about a topic and your director doesn't seem to be listening uh they're off they're, the pictures don't match this you know the script or vice versa, you know, the, maybe the announcer's talking about some other issue while uh, something's going on on the floor and your director's on it and he's following the story on the, the real story on the floor and your announcer's talking about where they went out to, you know, dinner last night <laughs> or something. So, you know, the, those, those are the kinds of things you really have to be attentive to. That's why I use two monitors um, in front of me. I, it was interesting. The first month I was doing the Blazers, I got caught a couple of times. With the, and that's the other thing, you kind of get used to the coach where he stations himself on the floor because we do it courtside. Our coach sometimes is stationed himself right in front of us. So he would kneel in front of us, but a big play or something happened on the floor, he'd pop up and suddenly <laughs> you're blocked. You know, you're blocked. Um, and there's this, you know, this sudden halting speech of your play by play guy who doesn't see the play. You know, the guy didn't, if you're at home, you're going, well, the guy's not, either not paying attention doesn't know what he's talking about, or he didn't see the play, you know, because the coach has popped up or a player's gotten away. So I used two monitors. Uh, after about a week of that, I thought, no, I'm not missing another call. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so we had two monitors. I've got two monitors in front of me, and a lot of times I will call most of the game, I'd say 60% of the game, off the monitors because I've got coaches, players, and so forth running out in front of me. Uh, that's the other thing that I think when you're doing TV, you really have to be attentive to that is constantly check the monitor to see, you know, what your director's giving you and what the picture looks like. How long has uh how long's your voice sounded like this <laughs> and and how much work has gone into it? 
Well, I, you know, I, I, I've just been blessed with, with good pipes, I guess. And I, you know, I think that my training uh, on radio has, has helped a great deal. You know, I've, I've done just about everything you can do on radio. I've done talk shows. I've been an overnight disc jockey. I've been a play-by-play announcer. I've done news. I've done spot news. You know, I did all of that stuff from high school on. So I've just, I've been, I've been trained in radio, which has really helped, uh, from, from a a television standpoint, um, with knowing how to use the voice to my advantage. Uh, but I think, you know, you're just, you're kind of blessed with what you have, but you know, there've been look any number of guys who, who didn't have the classic big pipes type sound who've made a great living and are on national TV on national radio and, and do a real nice job. Uh, tell me more about or women or women, I should say, sure, I say yeah. guys, when I say guys, I mean, anybody that's on the air, cause there are more and more women now that are doing uh, that, you know, obviously have done all the other stuff I've talked about, but have not done the play by play, but we're seeing, you know, a few women anyway, now that are, that are doing play by play on a regular basis. Tell me more about the, the radio side informing everything else you've done too. And, and what you've been able to, what do you glean from having been a, a disc jockey or a, a news guy that, that maybe informs other stuff you do now? Well, I mean, with the with the news reporting, you you just obviously get a good feel for what what's the lead, what is the story here, you know, the old question of who was it, uh, why, yep. when, where, all of that. Uh, you, you just you answer all those questions and you do it with brevity, uh, and and you do it in in big terms that everybody can understand. I think that's the first thing that you that you glean from doing local news and on on radio, and then. You know, from a disc jockey standpoint, you get a real a, a sense of timing uh, and how to talk over music, uh, how not to talk over music, uh, how to use different production elements to your advantage and so forth. Uh, th- those those have all been pretty invaluable uh, from that standpoint. And do it, doing them instinctively, uh, just being able to just get it done and, and your timing and so forth. You just You just have it. I mean, little rollouts at the end of, uh, as you're going to commercial and so forth, you know, being able to in five or 10 seconds, talk over a picture and say something that is semi-meaningful and coherent. That's harder than it looks. Have you ever done voice lessons, training, any of that kind of stuff, or is it just? No, I, I, you know, I, I did that with just, uh, a number of really fine old announcers growing up. I, I was blessed. I was working in Indianapolis at WIBC went to Butler university and, uh, I worked, she, since my senior year at high school at Ben Davis, when we had a radio TV program there with guys that had actually been announcers in the business or were working weekends and so forth. And then working for commercial stations and just working with older announcers, you know, guys that were sometimes twice my age, uh, and then getting into, uh, WIBC was just, it was huge because I was, producing sports during the day and, and doing some feature stuff while doing overnight disc jockey work from you know midnight to, to 6 a.m. and working with some some pretty big time radio talent at that time and you know, I would just hang out at the radio station and occasionally they would throw me a bone and then uh, they get me back in the studio and these guys would just kind of teach me how, about inflection of the voice intonation and so forth and uh, it was invaluable um, I just, you know, I just don't know where you, you can't go to a broadcast school necessarily and get that. You just have to go somewhere and immerse yourself in it as a young, uh, I was about to say as a young player, 
But as a, as a young announcer, you just have to go do that. You know, I hope you have a veteran that will take you under your wing. And I had a number of mentors that really did a nice job. There's a, there's a fair analogy there in the in the young player side of things, too, though. Um, what, yeah. If I can go there, uh, as far as you being a, a, a young guy, a, a young player, uh, back uh, when you were in your 20s, um, you got to the NBA at 26, if I'm right on that, right? Yeah, I was doing the Kansas City Kings at the time. What's it, um, what's it like? A being... year before that, I was doing – I did Purdue basketball, and a year before that, I did checkers hockey. So I – Three play-by-play opportunities there in, in back-to-back years. Um, and again, it was because I kind of I waited my time. I was at WIBC, I think, for, for four years before they uh, gave me an opportunity to do some, some hockey. And I knew nothing about hockey. So you talk about being embedded, that's exactly what I had to do. I went to camp. I hung out with, uh, with the players, uh, learned as much as I possibly can about rules and regulations and strategy and so forth from – coach we had at the time by the name of Fred Creighton, who had been with the, the old Boston Bruins and had been with the Atlanta Flames as well back in the old days, uh, and did it myself and did it from the old Coliseum and did it on WIBC at 50,000 watt blowtorch. And boy, you talk about learning under pressure. That was, that was what I was doing. You know, previous to that, I was doing a handful of high school games every year. You know, we would do the state high school basketball tournament. I would do some high school games, some high school football on the weekends, not a great deal. Uh, but that was always my always my passion to do some play by play while you know being a disc jockey there at WIBC as well. Yeah, I probably could have gone a couple of ways there with that, but uh, I decided that play by play was going to be uh, going to be the calling. And so I got that opportunity to do hockey. And then the next year, uh, Johnny DeCamp uh, retired after some 40 years as the play by play announcer of the Boilers. I did uh, Boilermaker basketball for a season, and then the opportunity to, to do NBA games uh, presented itself. My wife and I moved to Kansas City, and I did the Kings for a year. What is, uh, what's it like being 26 in the NBA uh, and kind of being the young guy in that fraternity? Well, at that time, now this goes back to, uh, gosh, I've even forgotten the date now, 84. It would have been would have been a year would have been a year before the Kings actually moved to Sacramento. So yeah, 83-84 season. Uh, it was delightful because I got hired late, so it wasn't. Uh, I didn't really join the club until the last week of the uh, last week of camp, and so I did a couple of preseason games, and then man, we were up and running. And I was doing a game at Kemper Arena. We were playing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the Los Angeles Lakers. So. Uh, what was it like? It was it was extraordinary, is what it was like. It was outstanding. You know, and I had I had, I had exposure to the NBA because I used to do pre and post game shows for the Indiana Pacers leading up to that, uh, and had sat by the side of Bob Lamy and listened to Bob do games for for years. And before that, the great Joe McConnell, it was just terrific. And then the guy who I grew up listening to, Jerry Baker, uh, the original voice of the Indiana Pacers. You know, going back to 1968. So I, I had a, a pretty clear understanding of what I wanted it to sound like. And then you just kind of work on your own personality and your own touches and you add your own elements and so forth to the game. And, and so I, I think I was ready for that first game. We, and again, we were doing a simulcast. They hired me to do the simulcast. I'm doing both radio and TV, doing somewhat of a radio call, uh, working with a guy by the name of Easy Ed McCauley whose number is retired in the rafters uh, of the Garden in Boston, um, who 
you know, Hall of Fame player, but he, you know, he, he claimed that his that his real notoriety came because he was one of the guys that was traded uh, to St. Louis for the draft rights for Bill Russell in 1956. So he said. <laughs> Said he was responsible for actually building those great teams of Boston, both as a player and as a guy who was traded for the rights uh, to Bill Russell in '56. But uh, that's uh, so easy. Ed and I were doing the broadcast here in Kansas City, doing the simulcast. I'm uh, I'm a young pup doing the game and just uh, living large and having a great time. When you got the Sonics job a couple of years later, um, what was that like in terms of your your pitch and how that all came together? As a, a Midwest guy who's done the NBA for a year in Kansas City, um, but uh, did you have any ties to the West Coast or Seattle, or, or what was your thing to say? I'm your guy to 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 bring out here and, and become the next Supersonics voice. Yeah, well, my entree into the league was uh, so so the assistant general manager in Indianapolis was a fellow by the name of Bob Witsit who uh, recognized me and I, I didn't know Bob well, but I knew him well enough. And, you know, we talked basketball and so forth. And he was a young executive on the rise and we we're essentially the same age. I think a year or two difference. Uh, and so Bob, you know, recognized him. Well, here's a young guy that's, you know, aggressive and is working at his craft and loves the NBA and so forth. Uh, and so when I called him uh, wondering about this job in Kansas city, I can't even remember how I knew about this job opening up, to be honest with you. Uh, I'd have to think about that one long and hard, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's obviously before the day you could you could jump online and you know email someone or so forth. You had to, you know, you'd constantly badger people by phone before the cell phone, believe it or not. Uh, so you know, you're you're constantly badgering people, trying to catch up with people. Can I leave a message? You get, you you really get to know the secretaries extremely well. You know, by first <laughs> to last name, send them a card, send them a letter, and so forth always sending tapes, following up with calls, waiting a week to hear from someone. Should I call now? Should I not call now? <laughs> you know, am I being too aggressive, not aggressive enough? You know, all this thing that goes through your mind as, as a young announcer trying to, trying to, to, to get a job, trying to get a foot up in the business. Um, and so when uh, we had actually moved to Seattle with another job, I was doing studio stuff. And we moved out here with Gannett Broadcasting. Uh, for a radio station here in Seattle. Uh, this is after the Kings had moved to Sacramento. We decided we did not want to go to Sacramento. Won't even get into that story, but we, you know, now we've got a child and we've got one on the way. Uh, I'd just done a year with the University of Missouri, uh, worked in Kansas City, worked for three radio stations in one year, or three different ownership groups in one year in Kansas City. It was just not a good situation had a one-year contract, and at the end of the year, it was just a parting of the ways. So now I'm 30, I've got a child, and we're, my wife's pregnant, and we are going to move across country to Seattle, a town that my wife had never seen, and I had visited exactly one time. Uh, we, we came to town uh, before they hired me. I had a job. I had a, a chance to interview. We had a chance to spend two days in Seattle. My wife absolutely loved it. Uh, I loved it. Uh, we decided that we would give the West Coast a try. And if it didn't work out, we could always move back to the Midwest. Well, that was in 87. So I go to work for Gannett Broadcasting. And this is the world of broadcasting. This is this is, this is is the, the, the craft, the, the work you have chosen, my friend. This is how crazy this, <laughs> this, 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 this thing can change. So I, we were hired on a one-year contract, get to town. Within four months, 
Gannett Broadcasting decides that it's not working and they're going to fire the entire staff and change formats. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my God, really? Great. So I, I, I get into contact with Bob Whitsett, who's a guy that I knew in, in Indianapolis, the guy who hired me in Kansas City, and he is now the general manager of the Seattle Supersonics. There you go. And Bob says, you know, uh, your timing couldn't be better. We are changing radio stations, and we are looking to make a change with our announcer. And he said, send me a tape. So I sent him the tape. The owner liked my stuff. It always comes down to the owner. If they like your stuff, you're in. If they don't like your stuff, you're out. It's just the way it goes. Uh, he liked my stuff. And so in 87, I was hired to do uh, to play-by-play with uh, on radio with uh, the Supersonics. And then two years later, they hired me. Uh, uh, they, they wove me into the TV, and uh, we began to simulcast just as we did in, in Kansas City. So you have to be good, but you also have to be lucky. You have to be Johnny on the spot. It also helps to, you know, to uh, create good contacts, good relationships, and continue to network and, and be persistent. You know, never give up. Can you describe for me 21 years later? Um and I, I'm sure that Greg Papa might be going through this now, uh, what it's like to be the voice that people identify with and the person that they hear um, that is talking to them about the thing that is leaving them uh, and, and how you how you handle, I don't want to say, resp- maybe how you handle that responsibility uh, in, in some regards to, to this fan base that is losing something so near and dear to them. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think, you know, I, I think that the difference is that that Greg has has got the heads up uh, on this uh, because he knows in advance uh, what's going on. I I never believed that the Sonics would leave. I was in a minority. Um, I always thought that uh, a top fifteen market over three three million people here in in a two county area, uh, forty one years of history a championship, uh, a number of Hall of Fame players, a great legacy. I, I never thought that the NBA uh, would move ever, ever allow a team to move out of here uh, without really uh, doing the hard work of, of trying to, if, if the building was the issue, without doing the hard work and spending many years on the ground here in Seattle trying to uh, get a, a new building project done, uh, trying to do what it, it takes with with local politicians and so forth. Uh, I just don't think enough of that hard work was attempted and was done here in the market. So coming into that season in 06, I never believed it was going to happen. And then, of course, the ownership group then, uh, Clay Bennett out of Oklahoma City, made it abundantly clear that, you know, he couldn't, he, he wouldn't any longer take losses. Uh, we knew that the club only had two years left on the lease in Seattle, you know, a binding legal agreement, a lease I never thought could be broken. Uh, but Bennett, you know, was bold and uh, he took the city, he was calculating and he took the city to, to court and the city buckled because they had very poor leadership uh, and off they went. And that, I mean, that, that happened in a period of about six months. All of that went down uh, in a period of six months. The league did nothing to prevent it. Uh, the commissioner at the time, David Stern, uh, in no way was uh, a, a proponent, apparently, for uh, the future of NBA basketball in Seattle. 
uh, actions speak louder than words. And off they went to, to Oklahoma City. I was in the final year of my contract, which meant I wasn't beholden to Oklahoma City. didn't have to move on. Uh, but I, you know, I remember the last game I did, we were on the road at, uh, uh, we were in San Antonio and I remember just being on the air and saying, you know, if this is, you know, the last time we speak to you, uh, uh, as, as broadcasters of the Seattle supersonics, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a great 21 seasons and, you know, thanks for your support over the years and so forth. But, uh, it was and it was also made clear to us, you know, by management too, you know, that we we'd be better off on the air, you know, not not breaking that down, not getting involved in the issues and so forth. And so that was very difficult to do that, you know, to, to discipline yourself and 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 not get into the issues of you know should they move, should they not move. Uh, this this uh, lawsuit that was then ginning up uh, and uh, you know the court battle that would that would then ensue, you know, it was a five day hearing that they had. That was it. They decided the, the, uh, the future of the Sonics. And that was in July going back to 2008. And, uh, you know, we've, we've looked back ever since then and, and we've said, what if, you know, what if the city had, had held, uh, had held the ownership to, uh, uh, the remaining two years of the lease Would the Sonics still be in town. I mean, it's all hypothetical now, but, uh, you know, in terms of the way I approached it, that final season, I, I never believed it was going to be the final season. Uh, and up until the last game of the year, I still didn't believe that uh, the NBA would allow it to happen or that uh, at the last moment investors wouldn't step in or that something would happen to, to keep them in Seattle. Boy, was I wrong. We talked about it off the top with all of the things you've been doing uh until you got the Portland uh, job this past year as well. But what are you thinking in that moment, just professionally? Uh, I mean, obviously you're a, at that point, two decades NBA voice. So uh, I'm sure there's some sense of security that you will find something. Uh, but what was your approach to what do I do with my life now as a broadcaster when that all happens? Well, you know, the reason we didn't move to Oklahoma City primarily, well, two things. One, I, I, hated, <clears throat> I really hated the way things went down. And I, I just, I thought, Seattle's going to be where I'm going to live uh, post career, and I, I don't want to be known as a guy that just you know rode the wave and, uh, and and took off to Oklahoma City, leaving Seattle in the bag. Um, that was first and foremost. I had uh, deep allegiances to Seattle, and then secondly, I had four kids in four different schools, and I explained that to the management of of uh, the Thunder and the ownership. They wanted me to come to Oklahoma City, and I mean they were. <laughs> They were they were offering an ex I mean an extremely <laughs> an extreme extreme financial package and I just could I couldn't do it um, you know I felt like look I've got enough in the bank I've got enough invested I can get my kids into school uh, I can be around for them uh, I've had 21 years in the league uh, if this is it for me then so be it I felt like I had. Uh, uh, equity within the market in Seattle as well. Felt like, you know, if I, if I, if I need to do some talk radio, I can do it. If I need to go out and do some freelance stuff, I can do it. Maybe this is my opportunity now to go and work full time for ESPN and do some things. And sure enough, you know, uh, when one door closes, others open. I know it's an old cliche, but it's so true. Uh, I was within a year, within that first year of me not doing the Sonics, uh, I was doing ESPN. NBA and ESPN, a package of about 15 games. 
uh, I was doing a talk show here in Seattle, a sports talk show in the afternoons, and I was doing Sounders soccer the first year of their operation on radio and TV. I had actually had more than I could hand possibly handle. <laughs> with it. Yeah, it was incredible. You know, it really was. It was nuts. So yeah, uh, you know, and you just you you just you're aggressive. You stay aggressive. You make calls. You get back to networking. You don't take no for an answer. You know, it's easier for people. Uh, it's it's easier to have people pick up the phone when you're when you're calling where they know that you know they you're a guy that's been around for a couple of decades and you've done this stuff. So, you know, one thing leads to another. It was great because we got an opportunity to do college football, which I hadn't done in years. Did that for four years in the Pac-12 network. I was doing college basketball for the Pac-12 network. Um, I got a chance to do some stuff on Westwood One. I was part of their postseason NCAA broadcast as well, something I'd always wanted to do but could never do because I was doing uh, Sonic games for all those years. So, you know, here we are doing March Madness on radio, you know, Worldwide Network. That was was extremely fun. So I got a chance to do all this stuff that I, you know, had not done uh, or hadn't gotten a chance to do in in years and really enjoyed it. Uh, In in some respects, I, you know, looking back, I kind of miss it. But, uh, you know, this is going to be a much better uh, avenue uh, moving forward. Kevin Calabro of the Portland Trailblazers. I almost caught myself there. Uh, I did catch myself there. I almost called him Kevin Calabro of the, of the Seattle Supersonics. <laughs> That's been a long time. It's just, it's, it, it's weird. It doesn't feel like it's been that long in some respects. I'm sure for people from Seattle, it feels like forever. But uh, Kevin Durant played for the Seattle Supersonics for a year. I, it's just weird to kind of put that perspective on it. Like you don't you don't think about like when I think of the Supersonics, I think of Sean Kemp and Detlef Schrempp. Uh, it's just weird to think about the Kevin Durant. Yeah, played his first year in the league before going to Oklahoma City. Uh, played for the Sonics. So in some sort of perspective, it hasn't been all that long, uh, but it's been a while. And uh, it's interesting to hear Kevin kind of talk about the end. It reminds me I'm a pro wrestling guy. Uh, it, it reminded me of uh, Cody Rhodes, the pro wrestler who departed WWE, and he made a list for himself of all these opponents he wanted to face and events he wanted to be a part of and kind of went down. And as he became an independent wrestler, checking off all kind of his his wish list items. And it was just interesting hearing Kevin at the end there. You spend all this time as the voice of a team, which has so many great merits uh, in its own right. Uh, it's what I do. It's it's what a lot of us do in this industry. Um, but when he was no longer the voice of a team, as bittersweet as that was, it kind of gave him this uh, kind of freedom to be this independent wrestler of sorts and, and check off all the different opponents. Do an NCAA tournament, do some stuff for ESPN, do some stuff for Pac-12 Network. Uh, he, he did some stuff for Washington. So you kind of on Pac-12 Network, so you kind of kind of got to explore professionally a little bit that way and branch out. Uh, So it was kind of neat to hear him talk about that side of things. Uh, Many thanks to Kevin Calabro for joining us here and being a full year guest number 52 here on play by play cast with the NBA season coming to a close. um, I hit up a a couple of guys that are NBA voices here as they, they start their off seasons. And we've got another one next week and a conversation I am super excited about. Uh, loved sitting down with Brian Seaman, who's the voice of the Los Angeles Clippers. We will have that conversation next week, talking all about how he worked his way up uh, 
basketball like a lot of people would minor league baseball which is kind of a unique climbing of a ladder uh we'll talk about working solo in the nba all of those things and much more that is next week with the voice of the los angeles clippers brian seaman in the meantime though for episode 52 for kevin calabro many thanks as always for uh his time and his efforts many thanks to you for clicking subscribe and download and joining us again here today remember uh, follow us on Twitter, retweet, quote tweet, uh, interact with us as best you can or want to uh, to help spread the word about the pod. And then again, we'll give you like 10 more seconds here to, uh, if you have some time, rate, review. We'll just, we can chill. Just waiting, waiting. All right, good. Uh, now that we got the, uh, lot, we should have a lot of five stars, maybe some fours. Maybe uh, I'll, we'll t- if we get a couple threes, I'm cool with some threes. Many thanks, as always, for uh, for your continued support. Uh, it's been a blast over a year doing this podcast so far, and uh, I am super excited to, to keep going forward with it and uh, and see where it goes from here. And uh, glad you guys have all been along for the ride. Uh, in the meantime, 52 episodes, one full year in the books. Uh, hit it, Marshmallow. For Kevin Calabro, I'm Joel Godet, uh, Brian Seaman, next week, right here on PXP Cast. We're out. I'm going to go, 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 I'